The Island Institute presents From the Sea Up, stories of sustainability from Maine's coastal and island communities. I'm your host and the producer of this series, Galen Koch. In this six-part limited series of From the Sea Up, we explore the diverse array of sustainable seafood that makes up Maine's coastal economy and supports the state's fishermen, aquaculturists, sea farmers, and working waterfront businesses. This week, we're diving headfirst into the world of a very mysterious, mythical, and enigmatic fish, the American eel. It may surprise you that eels are indeed fish, They have scales, you just can't feel them or see them, and tiny fins and gills. But the eel evokes a certain feeling that other fish may not. Its slippery, slimy, snake-like quality has led this fish to be both feared and revered. The American eel itself is a mysterious creature. And in Maine, the elver fishery, the harvesting of tiny juvenile glass eels, is legendary in its own right. Just try mentioning elver fishing at your next dinner party. If you live in Maine, or maybe even if you don't, I guarantee someone at your table will say, oh, don't they kill each other over those things? Or, I heard fishermen get $10,000 a pound for those. Both of these statements aren't true, mind you, but the legend of this fishery has inspired BuzzFeed articles and clickbait. It's Maine's last Wild West fishery. Or at least, it was. Today we're going to unpack some of the mystery surrounding the elver fishery, and we'll get as close to the eel as we can. The American eel is a catadromous fish, meaning it spawns in the open ocean and lives the majority of its life in freshwater ponds and lakes. It's mind-blowing, the life history that the eel has. This is Sarah Rademacher, the founder and president of American Unagi. You know, they all migrate to the Sargasso Sea. Every single eel that hits our coast was born there, but they don't necessarily come back to the same rivers. So, you know, an eel can, you know, drift, it can land in, you know, the Caribbean or can land in Canada or can hit our main coast. The American eel and European eel both spawn in the Sargasso Sea, a saline-rich sea located in the Bermuda Triangle. Although eels have never been seen, either mating or reproducing in the wild, the Sargasso Sea is widely accepted as their breeding ground, though it's not 100% certain. The tiny willow leaf-like eel larvae, Leptocephali, are carried by ocean currents and find their way to rivers all along the American and European coasts. The larvae turn into juvenile eels see-through small, glass-like elvers that travel upstream to muddy freshwater homes where they'll live for as long as 30 years. The eel's reproductive mysteries have captivated scientists and thinkers for thousands of years. Aristotle believed eels were neither male nor female, that they sprang out of mud spontaneously. This theory was debunked, of course, But from the time of Aristotle all the way to the late 1800s, the eel's reproductive organs eluded the scientific community. This is because eels lack reproductive organs until they reach sexual maturity, right before they journey back to the Sargasso Sea. Then, and only then, do their sex organs reveal themselves. The mystery of the eel captivated Aristotle and Sigmund Freud, and ultimately a man named Johann Schmidt. Here's Sarah. You know, there's these crazy stories. The, the guy who figured out that they were born in the Sargasso 
um, was a marine researcher who married uh, the uh, heiress of Carlsberg Beer, who apparently Carlsberg Beer was a big um, influencer on marine uh, research. That marine researcher was Johann Schmidt. So he like made that happen and then was like, cool, love you, I'm out and like spent 20 years or more on a boat drifting and just trying to catch smaller and smaller eels until he got to the Sargasso and they found like really, really tiny um, leptocephali, which is the larval stage. So he was like, all right, it happened somewhere around here. But that's like the last of it. And that happened, I think, almost 100 years ago, and they still haven't, haven't seen it. The mystery of eel reproduction is one major reason why Maine's elver fishery is what it is. The story goes like this. In the early 1970s, a fisheries attaché from Japan sent a memo to the state of Maine. The memo asked if the state could support a commercial elver fishery. The Japanese grew elvers to adult-sized eels in aquaculture ponds, and the fish is a staple of Japanese cuisine. In those early years, elvers were caught and sold for the same reason they are today. Even in 2021, it's not possible to breed eels in captivity. They have been bred, but then the larvae die. And so, in order to raise large quantities of eel for consumption, they must be caught in the wild and raised in aquaculture ponds or facilities. When the memo from Japan was sent to Maine, Bill Sheldon was a state employee with a degree in wildlife management. Sheldon developed methods to find and catch elvers and to keep them alive. Decades later, he would become embroiled in an elver scandal, serving six months in prison for knowingly buying illegally caught glass eels. But that's another story altogether. In the early 70s, though, Sheldon wrote the first official report on elver fishing in Maine, and he's referred to often as the grandfather of the fishery. Pat Bryant of Nobleboro started fishing for eels in the late 1970s, when a friend of her brother's, an eel farmer in South Carolina named Randall Livingston, asked if they could supply him with some elvers from Maine. And so we decided to go try it in New Harbor down at Pamaquid River, where I still am to this day. And um, that's, where we, that's where we decided to start. And we looked at him and went, oh my God. And so we, we kept, but we catch them at that time. I remember we used to catch, oh, I don't know. If we caught 15 pounds, it was a crummy night, so we leave. So we used to catch around, I don't know, anywhere from 85 to 100 pounds a night. Pat owned a hair salon, and pretty soon she and her entire crew of hairdressers were out in the rivers at night, fishing for glass eels and selling them to Mr. Livingston to raise on his eel farm in South Carolina. Well, we had crews. We sent, like I said, we t- I'd take a couple of my girls and Paul, they'd call it Paul's harem, and <laughs> because it was my, <laughs> my hairdressers, and he'd take, he'd take us and to one place, to one river, like to Pemaquid, and, and then my brother and couple of bankers and a few of his friends <laughs> fished over here in the Waldeboro River. Pat Bryant was fishing for elvers, and she was also dealing and transporting the fish. She worked on the South Carolina farm and would drive mature eels to Chinatown in New York City once a week to sell to the Asian markets. Other eels would be shipped live to Japan. We had to transport them to South Carolina at that point because the only uh, person that even shipped those was Flying Tigers. That was the only airline that even shipped them. And uh, 
we used to sh we used to ship them in tanks, live eel tanks, like you have on the back of your truck. Mm -hmm. We put those on the airplane, and that's how they that's how they shipped them overseas. And it was several years before we figured out how to put them in. Uh, you know, in the styrofoam line boxes and that sort of stuff. And we used to pack them out in the driveway at my house mm -hmm. and um, ship them out. It, sometimes we'd go to, to uh, New York, to Korea, like Korean Airway, and pack them on the tarmac out there. We'd have to load everything, all the oxygen, the yield, and the water, and the whole business in the van and drive down there. And there we were. <laughs> it was fun. Pat was fishing and dealing elvers and eels at a time before regulations. And really, she and other dealers were inventing methods to deal with shipping the live mature eels. Like some other elver fishermen and dealers, Pat would travel from the southern U.S. to the north, chasing the eels as they moved into rivers in accordance with climate and temperature. It was a different time, to say the least. People were dragging them from one state to the next and doing this interstate. You know, if the, when you had one place, like if you had a People fishing it, they'd be go fishing South Carolina and say they came from Virginia, and and then Virginia would. There was no fisheries there, so you had that. You had the federal authorities trying to figure out where people were going, and somebody was. We had one guy that was coming from here and going all the way down the East Coast, and buying all these eels and saying they were from here. Traceability has always been an issue in the eel market. Even today, elvers are shipped to China or Taiwan and grown in aquaculture ponds. And there's really no telling where the adult eels were first caught, or if they were caught legally or poached. Now, Maine has the only substantial commercial elver fishery in the country. South Carolina does have a fishery, but the quota is incredibly small. The fishery is closely monitored, and regulations have tightened a lot. Not only to protect fishermen, but to protect the eels, too. Glenn Melvin has been involved in the elver fishery almost as long as Pat. He was one of the first fishermen to catch elvers in Waldeboro. Uh, back in the late 70s, I was um, 18, 19 years old, 20 years old. So I was digging clams during the day and raising as much hell at night as I possibly could. What we used to do back then is we used to dig, uh, dip smelts at night. And I don't like smelts, so I'd give them away. So that's what we did as like night entertainment. There's a field in Waldebro, it's called Thomas's Hill. And me and a buddy of mine, the field actually sits on the edge of the river. And on the edge of that is a big stream with a large waterfall. And me and a buddy of mine, um, who was the same age as I was, used to back his Ford truck to the edge of the river. And we'd open the doors and turn the stereo on because the speakers were in the doors and we'd go down and dip smelts. I had, used to wear a green army jacket that I bought at a lawn sale for five bucks. And I liked it because it had a lot of pockets and you could put a beer in every pocket. So I could pack it with a six pack and head down over the side and dip smelts all I wanted. We even had favorite music. There was a song called Fox on the Run by The Sweet that we used to crank. And a smelt net makes an excellent air guitar. If you ever stood on top of a rock at two in the morning with the moonlight cranking Fox on the Run, it's just the coolest thing you can possibly, it's living. We did that for like six months and I ran into a guy up street who said, did you know that the same time the smelts are running, there's these little glass eels, little baby eels. And there's a lady in Damascata who will buy them from you. Hence Pat Bryant. 
So I said, no way. He said, all you have to do is uh, remesh your dip nets. So we did. We went home and took off the smelt size and made a real fine mesh net and went back down and we dip elvers and smelts because you could take them with the same swipe. And then we'd sort them out in buckets. So then this is totally awesome because now I have beer money for tomorrow night. Some fisheries are born this way, through word of mouth, demand, and trial and error. Glenn made his net out of mosquito netting those first years, and he's been fishing for elvers ever since. He's taken a year off here and there, but after regulations tightened in 1994, he's at the very least kept up with his license. People did start getting into it because some, it was at least some money. So some people, and some people did it to do it. It was cool. You know what I mean? It was like when I got into scuba diving, it was a cool thing to do for sea urchins. So people did it just to say they did it. Some stuck with it. Some didn't. Uh, it was a very volatile fishery right up until recently. So you may go two years where they didn't pay anything for them, and it may not have been worth chasing for a lot of people. We did it only because it was always a sideline for us. Clamming was our, our, our breadwinning situation. The volatility of the elver fishery is where many of the rumors and legends arise. The shortage of elvers worldwide led to astronomical prices and price drops. In 2013, the juvenile eels fetched an average of $1,821 a pound. The next year, that price fell to $874 a pound. But since instituting more regulations, aside from price drops due to COVID in 2020, the price of Elvers has averaged between $1,300 and $2,300 a pound between 2015 to 2021. It is a high-priced fishery. And in the years leading up to 2014, the fishery was dominated by stories of illegal fishing, selling of illegally caught Elvers, and cars riding around the state with wads of cash, guns, and ammunition, to protect valuable catches. It needed to be regulated. It was chaos, hence people shooting at each other. But it was, it was too volatile. We had a lot, of, um, a lot of illegal activity going on. If you didn't have a license, you sold them for a friend who went and got them in the middle of the night. It was too chaotic. We needed to do something to settle it down. And um, we took on regulations. We also needed to maintain the fishery. Um, once you start buying eels from over from other state lines, the FBI gets involved because it goes over state lines, and then their enforcement gets into it, and it costs these states a lot of money to enforce the fishery. So in order for us to maintain the fishery, we needed to regulate it tightly. Whether it was done exactly this way can be debatable, but it needed regulation, or we wouldn't have been able to maintain the fishery. East Coast fisheries would have shut us down, too. So it needed to be done, and this is where we are today. Both the American and European eel are considered endangered among some conservation groups, though it's really hard to pinpoint eel numbers because their exact spawning location is still unclear. But there has, decidedly, been a decline in the number of elvers in some coastal regions. And fisheries like Maine's urchin fishery, which also catapulted because of demand from the Japanese market, provide cautionary tales of taking too much of one thing at one time. In response to pressure from the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission, which proposed a closure of the elver fishery in 2014, 
the Department of Marine Resources instituted new quotas and monitoring of the fishery. The fishery now runs from March 22nd to June 7th. There are set quotas for tribes in the Wabanaki Confederacy, and the 425 license holders in the state are allowed a total of 9,688 pounds. The glass eels are caught with dip net or fike nets, conical-shaped nets that trap the elvers, or Sheldon eel traps. And there's other changes on the horizon for this particular fishery. As American consumers become more concerned with where our food is coming from, a demand for traceability is becoming more important. One person who is changing the eel story in Maine is Sarah Rademacher, the founder and president of American Unagi. I visited Sarah at the University of Maine's Center for Cooperative Aquaculture Research in Franklin, Maine. Sarah is, she admits, from away, which in Maine just means you weren't born here. It's a catch-all. Sarah grew up in the Midwest, went to Auburn University in Alabama, and became enmeshed with aquaculture. In 2009, she volunteered with AmeriCorps in Maine. I ended up being here for about three years working with a nonprofit got to know the aquaculture industry, the community, and um, and then I, I left and immediately missed it. So I, wor- I went back abroad and, and worked um, for a large-scale commercial farm. And I, after a year, I was like, you know, I, I think I want to I live in Maine. I really love the community. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to settle down and, like, have roots in some place, which had never happened to me before in my life. The drive to set up aquaculture here in Maine led Sarah to eels. She started experimenting with eel aquaculture in her basement after buying a handful of glass eels from one of the elver dealers that dominate Maine's downeast roadways when the fishery is open. Sarah was immediately struck by how well the fish did in a land-based aquaculture setup. She expanded her operations to the Darling Marine Center before moving her facility to the Center for Cooperative Aquaculture Research, a research facility and business incubator in Franklin. Sarah's system for growing eels is pretty different from the pond aquaculture happening worldwide because she works within the main community, directly with elver fishermen. Instead of elver shipping across the world and back again to U.S. markets, American Unagi's products stay in Maine and ship domestically and internationally. And with eels in particular, like globally, it's known that this species has some big concerns because a lot of the fisheries aren't managed. It's very high value, so there's worldwide poaching issues, black market issues. So having that accountability really, really differentiates us in the marketplace. Like there's, as far as I know, no other eel that can say, you know, catfish these eels from the Pemaquid River and uh, use a pipe net. You know, one thing, too, that differentiates our method of aquaculture is it's all land-based. So on this facility, we reuse over 95% of the water. So, and everything is indoors, it's controlled. So you're able to maintain the best growing environment for the fish. Uh, But it also means we know inputs and outputs of the, you know, our water usage, our power usage, all of that's very controlled. In American Unagi's aquaculture facility, the baby eels are separated in tanks when they come in from the wild to get them acclimated to an indoor life. They're then transferred to 28 different tanks where they'll grow to market size. It can take between 7 to 24 months for eels to mature to market size. They grow at variable rates. 
So once they're large enough, they'll go to holding tanks until they're sorted and ready to be sold either live, filleted, or smoked. So I had heard, you know, eel, smoked eel was great. So I borrowed a smoker, watched a YouTube video, and was like, all right, I can do this. And it was incredible. Um, I, again, I'm from the Midwest. Anything fishy flavored, I was like, ugh. But the eel is... It's not like any fish that I've ever had. It's it's super rich, it's oily, but unlike a mackerel that can get like that oily fishy flavor, eel is like, it's more like, like bacon grease than like fish fat, which is bizarre. American Unagi is expanding. The company is moving to a 27,000-square-foot facility in Walderboro and will experiment growing 600 pounds of elvers in spring 2022. Clamor and elver fisherman Glenn Melvin, a Walderboro resident, was initially skeptical of Sarah's proposal to operate in Walderboro. Glenn is, first and foremost, a clam digger, and he worries about pollution and the health of the rivers and shellfish beds that sustain his livelihood. So when Sarah first came to Walderboro with quote-unquote aquaculture, my first response was, no, you will not keep moving, girl. Find a different river because we don't welcome aquaculture. And that's how this is set up. It is really, really interesting. The first thing Sarah did was she came before the Shellfish Committee to try to get their endorsement of her being in our river, which I thought took a lot of guts and a lot of spunk, and I appreciate her for doing that and explaining what her operation is. Uh, AU, uh, Sarah's American Unagi, um, it's land-based aquaculture. She will not take any coves. She will not lease any land. What she does is take water from the river, use it for her eels, and then puts it back into the river. Now, she does this five miles, six miles upstream from tidal water. So she's not even affecting the tidal part of the Madomic itself. Our biggest concern is pollution. So I have spent much time talking with Sarah, and she's completely on board with. She heavily tests the water that goes back into the Madomic for fecal coliform, for other items, that it will be monitored and cleaned, and the water going back could be cleaner than actually what she took out. It's important for Glenn that Sarah approach the project by going first to the Shellfish Committee in Walderboro. And now he's in full support of American Unagi. He even sells some of his elvers to the company. So she, she's, she's strict as to what she wants because she wants a good product. She needs a very high success rate. And if I sell her 100 eels, she needs 90, you know, 98 of them to live because they're worth so much. And I need 98 to live because that's the only way I'll get more quota is to have her be a success. That's the plan. That's what we're all on board for. That's why AU is in Walderboro. That's why we're thrilled to have her here. Uh, The taxes she pays, the people she hires, all local for the year or two that it takes to grow the elver. Um, And then hopefully local fishermen will get more of her quota as time goes on, if she can expand more. So everybody will win if AU wins. So that's my highest priority. From where I'm sitting, all I can do is see it winning, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it happens. 
Operating a land-based aquaculture facility with connections to Maine's people and environment is an important component of American Unagi's business model. The historically volatile elver fishery could have a more stable future. The value of each individual elver increases when the fish is sold in Maine and raised in Maine. And American Unagi's final product is deeply connected to Maine's community. It is a purely local product. Something that, um, to me, drives me a lot in doing this business here is that it's connection. You know, that's one thing I, I loved immediately about being in Maine is that it's the first place that I've lived where I really felt connected to the community in a way that I hadn't in any other place that I've lived. And I don't know if it's the communities here are small, that people know each other, or, you know, there's the whole connection where a lot of people's jobs depend on the environment. So there's ultimately not only a connection to communities, but to the environment that people live in. So when I saw the opportunity with Eel, um, it made a lot of sense to me because there was an ability to connect this fish even deeper into the community. And to me, that's better for, it's better for the community, it's better for the eel species itself, and it also is better for the consumer. To sustain the elver fishery in Maine, residents in the state need to understand the fishery, the value of it to fishermen's livelihoods, and the great lengths that the Department of Marine Resources, Maine Elver Fishermen's Association, and other organizations and individuals are going to manage the fishery responsibly. And American Unagi provides consumers with an entirely new kind of eel product, one that can be traced directly to Maine's rivers and Maine's fishermen. You know when you purchase one of our eels, it not only supports the practices that we do with local production, with you know not using hormones or antibiotics, but also it supports the local fishermen. So it's that whole you know story that goes um, with the product, but it's it's not just the story; it's the actual like connection of the fish to the area. I I still haven't really gotten a good way to explain like how powerful that is to me um, doing this business. Thanks for listening to From the Sea Up, presented by the Island Institute and produced by me, Galen Koch. Special thanks to Sarah Rademacher and the crew at American Unagi, Glenn Melvin and Pat Bryant for their participation in this episode. Also, thanks to the many authors and radio producers who have written about the eel mysteries. To buy American Unagi products, visit www.lukeslobster.com. For more information about American Unagi, visit www.americanunagi.com. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more episodes of From the Sea Up. I'll be telling the stories of some of the diverse and sustainable marine species here in Maine. From the Sea Up is made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands and a partnership between the Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Luke's Lobster, Maine Sea Grant, and the First Coast. For more information, visit www.islandinstitute.org slash podcast.